Oh, well, good morning, Southview. How are we? All right, you are already out of the gate much more livelier than 9 o'clock. You've been able to have coffee, and I can tell. Excited. It's going to be good. Glad that you're with us, guys. Uh, if you're a guest with us, my name is Brad. I'm the pastor here at Southview, and it's so good to have you today worshiping with us. Uh, I want to begin by reading a scripture to us. Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. All right? Galatians 2, verse 20. I love this verse. I don't really have a life verse, but if I did, this would probably be one of my uh, top choices. But Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. You know, this passage really sort of um, encapsulates the gospel and how the gospel impacts our lives. Being a Christian is not about being good. It's not about attending church. It's not about stopping the bad things and starting to the good things. If you've been here longer than 10 minutes, you've heard me say that a billion times. What is Christianity? What is the heart of the gospel? The heart of the gospel is this. You and I were born rebels and sinners, haters of God. We loved ourselves. We loved our desires. We had our own wants. One of the first words you learned as a child was mine. It is innately ingrained in us. And that sin nature causes us to be opposed to God and ultimately sends us to hell. But God in his amazing grace sent his son Jesus Christ to die for our sins, to to take away the wrath of God that was on us because of our sin, to make us new from the inside. Christianity is not about you trying to be good. It's about God making you new on the inside, brand new, and then that newness works its way out to your hands, from your heart to your hands, causing you to now live new and live different. It all starts inside, not outside. And this verse really unpacks this. I have been crucified with Christ. When you believe by faith in Jesus, you died with him 2,000 years ago. How did that happen? I have no idea, but it, it did. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. When Jesus rose back from the grave, you rose with him by faith. So now you're alive in Jesus. You've died to your old life. You're alive to new life in Christ. You're brand new. So then how do you live that life, right? So you died on the cross with Jesus. You rose to new life with Jesus. Great. How do you do it now? And this verse tells you. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. How do you live this life? You live it by faith in Christ. You say, Jesus. Well, let's just think about it for us right here this morning. You're going to stand and sing here in just a moment. Don't do that in your own strength, in your own flesh. Don't just stand up and mouth words. Don't just stand up and do a thing. Consciously say, Jesus Christ, I want to do this by faith. You, Jesus, are alive in me. Worship through me. Empower me. Lead me to worship. I want to see you and be drawn to you. We're going to open up the word and study it here in a little bit. Do that by faith in Christ. Jesus, it's you in me. You are the word living in me. You in me connects with the word. Spirit to the word. I pray, God, that you would bring it alive to me. Let me see this. Let me understand this. Bring insight to my heart, my mind, my spirit, that I can see this and receive this, be made new by it. Do it by faith. By faith. It's all by faith. 
So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads for me, and I want to pray for us. And, and as, we, as we begin to worship here together, I want to encourage us to, right now, right where you are, consciously in your heart, in your spirit, say, Jesus, I want to do everything through the rest of this service just by faith in you. As I'm singing, I'm singing this by faith. As I'm proclaiming these words, I'm proclaiming them by faith. This is true of you and true of me. This is right. This is how you've saved me to be and saved me to live. As we open up the word, same thing. Lord God, by faith, Jesus, you are in me. Bring this word alive in me. I pray, God, you would do this in us. I pray, God, that you would empower us in this. I pray, Lord, we'll see a real change in the way we do things, in the way we worship and the way we sing and the way we respond to the word because we're doing it now not by our flesh but by faith do this in us god for your glory thank you do this jesus we pray this in your name amen hey let's stand guys we're gonna worship jesus together amen good morning church let's sing and celebrate the work of christ in our lives
nothing can stand against the power of our God. You shine in the shadows. You win every battle. Nothing can stand against the power of our God. Almighty fortress, you go before us. Nothing can stand against the power of our God. You shine in the shadows. You win every battle. Nothing can stand against the power of our God. Almighty fortress, you go before us.
heritage promise of His word. No winter face, and no spring will come. The Lord is my
God, as we open up your word, again, I pray Galatians 2.20 over us. I pray that we would be people who seek to do this now by faith in you, not on our own intellect, not on our own ability, but just by faith in you. And I pray, God, for me, that I will not stand up here today preaching, teaching in any way that's in my own strength. I pray, God, that you would, um, God, right now I just seek to do it by faith, and I pray, God, that my people will seek to hear and receive by faith, and we believe that you will do infinitely more in that than any of us ever could by ourselves in our own strength. Open your word up to us now, God. Open up our hearts to receive. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Hey, uh, if you got a Bible, let's find Titus chapter 1. All right, Titus chapter 1. Uh, so we're through the fall, uh, leading up into Christmas, we're going through the book of Titus. And, and what we kind of said about the book of Titus and what's going on here is, so Titus is the pastor. Uh, this is a letter written to Titus by a man named Paul. Titus is on an island called Crete in the Mediterranean Sea. And Titus is there trying to get these things in order, trying to set up these churches and get everything figured out and squared away. And Paul is writing some instruction to him. And what's going on here in Crete are two things that are kind of combating against one another. On one side, Crete is, um, has a culture that embraces and loves immorality, to be quite honest, right? The, the heartbeat of the culture of Crete is do what helps you, do what makes you happy, do what's good for you, you do you, right? And, and God loves you, so God wants you happy, and God loves you, so God wouldn't want to stand in the way of that, and God wants you to be who, he's, who, who you feel like he's created you to be, right? So you, you just lean into that, and you, you go for that. And then you had another group over here that rightfully saw that that is wrong, but how they tried to handle it was itself also wrong. They said, okay, no, 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 that's not good. You need to live godly. And the way you live godly is by obeying these rules. you got to do these things externally, live this kind of life externally, show yourself in these external ways, and then that's going to prove how godly you are. Specifically, they love the Old Testament law, and specifically in that, the law of circumcision, right? You want to show how dedicated you are? Let's do it. And the membership class became all women very quickly. Um, But in the midst of all of that, you have Paul sending Titus and writing this letter to Titus, saying, no, Titus, here's what I want you to do. I want you to step into these churches, step into this island of Crete, and I want you to show them, no, it's not license. You get to live however you want. It's not legalism. You've got to obey these rules for God to truly love you. The answer is the gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ is, Romans 1.16, the power of God that actually saves you. We talk about the power of God and, and, and God showing his power and God doing miraculous things. There's nothing more miraculous and powerful than God taking a dead person spiritually and bringing them alive again. Taking a rebel and turning them to a son and daughter of God. Taking a hater of God and turning them into a lover of God. That is a powerful, amazing miracle. And Paul is telling Titus, I want you to go in and I want you to show them this. How you are going to change your life is through the gospel. 
How your family is going to be changed is through the gospel. How your community is going to be changed is through the gospel. This is how it happens. And so he's going to set all these things up. And these are profound things. I mean, this idea that how, how am I changed and become different? How does my family change and become different? How, what about, I care about my neighbors and my coworkers and the people I go to school with. What, what do I do to help them be changed and be different? And the answer to all that is the gospel. And these are huge questions. 95% of my counseling schedule is filled up with people asking these questions. And so Titus is going to jump into this and explain and go after these powerful, powerful questions that we have and how the gospel addresses them. But what we're going to see today is something really interesting. Before Titus, before Paul teaching Titus, talking to Titus, writing to Titus, addresses any of those issues, how you're going to change, how your family's going to change, how your community's going to change, before he addresses any of those things, the very first thing he addresses is this, who should be your pastor? which I'm going to be honest, feels a little weird. It's a little awkward standing up here, you know, telling you how to critique me. So, but this is foundational. Why would he do this? Why does Paul start there? Let's, I want you to just really think about this for a minute. Why does Paul, before he addresses anything else, and again, Crete is a moral dumpster fire. It is crazy town. The people are living in all kinds of immorality. The church people are all confused as to what it means to live godly. But he doesn't go after any of those things first. The very first thing he does is say, here's who you should select to be your pastor. Why is that? Well, I think because if the gospel is the only hope you have, then we better make sure we have pastors leading you who have themselves been changed by the gospel and know how to help you do the same thing. Does that make sense? And if that's it, if that's the only hope we have, if that's the only um, bullet in our gun, then we need to make sure that the pastors leading the congregation have been changed by the gospel and know how to lead other people to be changed by the gospel as well. Um, sort of our, our big idea that we're going to kind of push through today is this. The gospel message produces gospel leaders who lead gospel ministries. And it kind of becomes very cyclical, right? So gospel message, the message of the gospel, changes people, grows people, develops people. They become gospel leaders who then lead gospel ministries that proclaim the gospel message, that then see other people changed and raised up as leaders to go lead ministries who proclaim the gospel message. And it becomes this amazing cycle of gospel growth and explosion. And it comes from us setting first Here's who the pastor should be, and here's what he should do, and here's how everyone, all of us should receive from him, and here's what this thing ends up looking like. So, let's jump in. Titus chapter 1, we're going to pick it up together in verse 5, all right? Titus 1, verse 5. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order... And appoint elders in every town as I directed you. All right, stop right there. If you have a pen and a Bible, and I encourage you to bring both, circle the word elder. That's what this whole thing is about. So what is an elder? Um, so a little working definition that we have is this. An elder is a man called by God to lead, teach, shepherd, 
Pray for and disciple a congregation. In short, an elder is a pastor. You're going to see these terms used throughout the Bible. Elder, overseer, shepherd, bishop, pastor, all the same thing. Some denominations have tried to kind of tease that out and have each of those things mean a different office. That's not what we believe the Bible teaches. We believe all of that is one big idea, one big office as pastor. And the reason they use different words is because it kind of describes different aspects and functions of this office. Does that make sense? This is a pastor. And when it says elder, um, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're looking for someone who's elderly. Right? Elder doesn't mean old. It's not so much physical elder that he's looking for here, but spiritual elder. Are you spiritually mature? What we're going to see in the next few verses here is the main thrust of the idea is, is this someone who is spiritually mature? They're spiritually grown up. Chronologically, they might be younger, but spiritually they're mature. I've known many young men who are spiritually mature. I've known many old men who are spiritually immature. doesn't matter. The question isn't the chronological age. The question is their spiritual maturity. Is this someone who is mature and growing an elder in the faith? The second thing that I want to kind of unpack just for a quick second is this, um, before we jump into the text. So you'll notice here at my definition, it says an elder is a man. Let's just unpack that just for a quick second. If you were to look at the text in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9 is where we're going to be. If you were to kind of do a quick um, uh, scan through that, what you're going to see is very masculine language. It's going to call him a husband. It's going to talk about his children. Verse 7 is going to say, he must not be arrogant. Verse 9 is going to say, he must lay hold, made firm to the trustworthy word as taught. We here at Southview Baptist Church hold a position called complementarianism. Let me teach you a big word. Complementarianism. What is complementarianism? Complementarianism is the belief that men and women are created co-equally in the image of God, but have different and complementary roles within marriage, family, and the church. What complementarianism teaches is God created men and women together and equal in every single way. Completely, 100% equal. Men and women have equal standing before God, equal footing in life in Christ, equal inheritance in the gospel of Jesus Christ, equal standing in the kingdom of God, equal, 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 100%. And in that equality, God has also given different roles and functions that complement one another. There are things that God has called men to do that he has not called women to do. Things that God has called women to do that he has not called men to do. And it is extremely important for us as a congregation not to get that twisted. This matters. We believe that the position of pastor is exclusively and entirely held for men alone. Here's why. That is not because we think, again, that women are some sort of second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. They are not. If you've been here longer than 10 minutes, I hope that you have seen that it's not the way we function here. If all the ladies in our church vanished tomorrow, we would be in a lot of trouble. A lot of trouble. Women have strong leadership roles in our church. Women are very key leaders within our congregation. We believe that. We hold to that. 
absolutely. And we believe there are certain things that God has called men to do. We believe that God has set up men in their families and in their church to be loving, compassionate, merciful, graceful, strong leaders. That is the way God has created the world to work. And by the way, I know, in, I know, I can't wait for your email. It's going to be awesome. So, um, you know, every so often, right, you just got to you know, throw a hand grenade out and just see what happens. So, um, I understand all of the pushbacks. I truly, truly do. Yes, in the Bible, it talks about different roles for men and women, but my goodness, culture was so different then. I mean, in the first century, in many places in the first century where these letters were written to, women weren't even considered full citizens. They couldn't vote, they couldn't own property, they couldn't uh, uh, testify in court. Of course they didn't have ladies serving as pastors then, of course not. But now we're different. Now equality is so much, surely culture has changed and we need to change with it. going to be a problem. Every time in the Bible that it teaches male headship, 1 Corinthians 11, Ephesians 5, 1 Timothy 2, every time it teaches headship, male headship, it always goes to creation, not culture. You'll never see a time in the Bible where the Apostle Paul is like, so ladies can't vote or own property, so we better let guys be the pastors. He always takes it back to Adam and Eve. There's a way God created the world to work. And just FYI, if you would go back to Genesis chapter 3, the sin that ultimately damned humanity was rooted in getting this messed up. Men and women changing the roles that God gave for them. Why is this such a big deal? Well, you're damned to hell because it got messed up. So that's kind of important. It's kind of a big deal. Like, it actually matters. It, it means something. And, and I would say in the home, if we believe that God has set it up for men to lead their homes, why would that change when you come to church? I mean, what, what changed in the 3.5 miles between your house and this church? We would say nothing, right? Nothing has changed. And so we believe that men are called by God. And, and, and this is very rooted in, in the Trinity as well. Trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. All God, all equally God, all 100% to be worshipped. All God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. None of them are less God. All equally God. And within the Trinity, they have different roles. For any of us to say, I don't like the fact that God gives me a different role, you might as well look at the Holy Spirit and we're like, you know what, that's not fair that God makes the Spirit do that. It's not fair. Like, yes, it is. Yes, it is, right? He's equally God. He just has a different function and role. And you're going to find flourishing for both men and women. Men, you're going to find flourishing when you stop letting some... Let, let, oh, see, I didn't say this in the first service. Now I'm going to get in trouble and mess my time up. Anyway, gentlemen, stop being so passive. Stop being so passive. A lot of the reasons that women push so hard for leadership in church is because the dudes sit on the back row and don't do anything. No offense to the guys in the back. I know it's just where you sat down. I'm sorry. 
right? So that's, that's step one, all right? It can't just be, guys, it can't just be, I can drive the van if you need me to, and I can change the light bulb, but my wife does the whole Bible study thing. You should ask her. I can't, can't do that, right? We got to actually, got to actually jump in the game here. And for ladies, right, you, accepting the role that God has designed for you is not a loss, it's a win. It's going to free you up to actually flourish in the way God has created you. And, and, and real quick, I would say this point as well. If you look at churches and denominations today that wholeheartedly accept the whole LGBTQIA plus minus divided by sign, hashtag, little squiggly thing over the N in Spanish, like whatever. <laughs> right? Churches, churches and denominations that wholeheartedly accept all of that without fault. Without exception, every one of them did not start there. Every single one of them started by questioning this issue 40 years ago. That's where it all began. If you start with questioning the roles of gender, that is a slippery slope. And everyone told them 30, 40 years ago, hey, that's going to go bad, man. You can't do that. No, 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 no. We're not going to accept that. That's crazy. We're just saying, surely it's not fair that women can't do what men can do. And then 20, 30, 40 years later, it's completely no holds barred. Once you start messing with gender, it only goes one direction. It only goes one direction. Right? I mean, remember when it was just, um, we don't want, um, all we want to do is just to live our life in our bedroom the way we want to live it. We don't care what anybody else thinks. That's all we want. Now, 10 years later, if you don't accept me and bake me a cake, I'm going to throw you in jail. Right? It only goes one direction. Right? It never goes backwards. It'll only go one direction. Same will be true for this. All right? Same will be true for this. We have to hold the line here. This is a minority view. It is becoming increasingly minority view within evangelical Christianity. But we're going to hold the line here because we believe the Bible teaches it. And it actually matters for the flourishing of humanity. Like it actually matters for the advancement of the kingdom of God. Like it, it's kind of a big deal. Right? So we, we hold that line. I, I, my plan was to do all of that in a minute and a half and it just got all messed up. All right. So what do we look for with a pastor? What is a pastor, what are the qualifications for this? So go to verse 6. Verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, verse 7, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. Let's just stop there for a second. So in those two verses, we've seen the same word twice, above reproach. What is that? So, Above reproach means um, no glaring character defect. Uh, literally, the, the, that phrase above reproach means um, um, nothing easily clings. So the idea is this. So the word above reproach is sort of a general junk drawer kind of term. And it just means, number one, you're looking for a pastor, a guy that just basically appears as godly. Right? He's just, he just lives a life above reproach. He, he, he's, he's the kind of guy that if an accusation came against him, it doesn't cling easily. If an accusation came against him, your immediate response would be, that just doesn't sound like him. 
right? I mean, okay, maybe it's true. Let's figure that out. But I've got to be honest right off the bat. That just doesn't sound like him. Remember math class growing up and your math teacher said, you can't just write down the answer. You've got to show me your work. A pastor needs to live a life in such a way where nobody can just throw something out against him. He lives his life in such a way where everyone immediately goes, you're going to have to show me your work on that. Like, you can't just throw out an answer. You, you can't just throw that. That doesn't sound like him. Maybe it's true, and if it is, we need to deal with it. But it doesn't sound like him, so you're going to have to show me your work. You've got to back that up, right? He's above reproach, right? Not perfect. <laughs> Not perfect. But generally speaking... He's a man that seeks to live in integrity and honor and, and morality and godliness. And he's, you know, he lives a life above reproach. Uh, also, what you see in, in, in verse 6 there is it focuses specifically on his family. All right, so look at verse 6. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife. That literally just means one woman man. In other words, he's a man that um, is physically, mentally, emotionally, spiritually dedicated to his wife and his wife alone. Right? He's a one woman man. Then it says, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So when it says that his children are believers, I don't think this means that they have to be Christian. Let me explain that. The word um, uh, there when it says in verse 6, children are believers, the word believer can also be translated out as faithful. Um, and, and so a couple of things. One, I don't think it means that the, that, that the kids have to be Christians in that number one, at the end of the day, that's God's business and not the pastor. Like, he can't make his kids be Christians. We got that? Like, you can't make that happen. That's, that's between God and the child. That's not something that the pastor can do, can force, can manipulate, can push. Uh, second, that would also mean if the children have to be Christians, that means you can't have a pastor with young kids who are too young to be saved, or pastors that don't have kids at all to be saved, right? But I think that last little phrase there... In verse 6, it helps explain it. All right, so children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. I think mainly what this is going after is this. Debauchery and insubordination are, again, rebellion and, and, and wild living and all those sorts of things. The idea is, do his children love, honor, respect, and obey him? They're not perfect. They got faults. They got things they're working through, they make mistakes, but when they do, how does he handle it as a general rule? Do his kids respect and honor and obey him, right? Can he, can he lead his family, right? Does he seek the best of his ability by the power of the Holy Spirit to love his wife and love his kids well, right? So that's first. Then in verse 7, it lays out here some things that should not be in him. Right? So verse 7 is going to list the things that he should not be. And then verse 8 is going to be a list of things that he should be. All right? So let's look first at what he should not be. Verse 7. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. And he kind of unpacks this now in the negative, what shouldn't be true of him. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. So let's unpack that just for a minute. So he says he must not be arrogant, right? So he's not prideful, he's not self-willed, he's not focused on himself, he thinks of others, right? He's not, he's not driven by pride. Uh, second, he's not quick-tempered, he's not easily angered, he's not a short fuse, he's not quick to jump back at someone, right? He's not, a, he's not an easily angered man, not a drunkard, he doesn't drink to excess, right? He, 
obviously he's not an alcoholic addicted to it, but I think you could even back that up just a touch. I mean, he, 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 he's not someone that just loves relishing and accessing in alcohol. Like he, he, he's not going to leave the church office on Friday so excited because he gets to get up tomorrow morning, go hit 18 holes, and drink half a case of Bud Light. Right? He's, he's not a drunkard. Like that's, not, that's not what drives his life. So he's not arrogant, he's not quick-tempered, he's not a drunkard, he's not violent. Now, this doesn't just mean physical violence, although that's obviously true. Like, if you have a pastor that punches you in the forehead, probably not good. But it's more than physical, right? It's verbal, right? This person isn't a, he isn't a quarreler, he's not a fighter, verbally speaking. He's not going to jump into debates constantly. He's not going to always be playing the devil's advocate. He's not quick to, to, to act defensive and, and, and to shoot back at people, right? He's not a fighter. He's not violent with his words or violent with his emotions, or right? He's not volatile. He's, he's even-tempered. He's, he's kind. He, 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 he's not known as a quick-tempered, angry person. Not greedy for gain. He's financially content and upright in everything that he does. He's not looking just to kind of get what he can. He's, he's generous with his money. He's faithful with his money. And he cares for people like that. Verse 8 then switches the gears and talks about what should be true. Right? So these things that should not be true. Right? He's not arrogant. He's not quick-tempered. He's not a drunkard. He's not violent. He's not greedy for gain. But here's what should be true of him. Verse 8, but hospitable a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Right? So hospitable. This means that he just loves people. He loves people. doesn't mean he's got to be an extrovert. I'm not. But he loves people. He loves being around people. He loves hanging out with people. Right? I tell our staff all the time, shepherds should smell like sheep because you hang out with them a bunch. Right? Good pastors don't walk around, you know, locked in their office all day because they don't feel like being all peeply. You're hospitable. Hospitable with your time, hospitable with your life, hospitable with your home. You have people in your house. Like you just, it's like hanging out with people, right? So that's, that's one. In order for you to pastor people, you have to actually love people and be around people. Shocking, right? So that's one. Lover of good. Oh, this is great. I love this one. A lover of good. Not just that he does good, but he's a lover of good. So, true or false? There are things you do in life that you don't love doing. Someone in this room probably has to go to the dentist tomorrow. You're not going to sleep tonight going, Oh, I'm so excited. I get to go to the dentist tomorrow. Yeah! Right? There are things you do you don't necessarily love. He describes a pastor here as a lover of good. Here's what that means. He doesn't do the right thing just because he knows that he should. He doesn't do the right thing because he's a pastor and that's what you would expect of him. He doesn't do things because he's a Christian and that's what Christians should do. That's how Christians should live. He actually loves doing the good. He doesn't just do good. He's a lover of good. And he loves doing it. He loves walking in righteousness. He loves being kind to people. He's not perfect in it. But he loves it. And when he doesn't do it, it truly breaks his heart because he loves doing that. Right? He misses it. You miss things that you love when they're not there. And so when he's not good, he hates that. Right? He's, a, he's a lover of good. 
Next thing it says is he's self-controlled. He's got a sound mind. He's disciplined. He's got sound decision-making. He's not frivolous in his thinking. Upright, that means he obeys God. He lives righteously. Holy, he's pure and unstained by sin. Disciplined, he has power over himself. I love that there are kind of two words that are very similar. They're self-controlled and, and disciplined. This idea, again, that he's, he lives control of his life, control of his emotions, control of his tongue. Control, I mean, right, he, he lives controlled. Again, all the things opposite of what we saw in verse 7. He's not quick-tempered, he's not angry, he's not violent, he's not flying off the handle. He's self-controlled, he's disciplined. He's, you know, it doesn't mean that he's mild-mannered necessarily, but he's, he lives a life of discipline and self-control, loves good, loves being around people, and seeks to bless them. And I want you to notice as you look at verses 6, 7, and 8, there isn't a single skill that's been listed, right? Not a single skill thus far has been listed. It is all about his character, how he lives his life. As you look for a pastor, it's important to understand the very first thing you want to do is not look at his skill set, right? He's good in front of a crowd, and he's good at organizing, and he's good with budgets, and he even knows a lot about the Bible. We'll get to that, but that isn't the first thing that we're talking about here. We're talking about his character, how he lived his life. Does he love his family? Does he love being with his family? Does he love being with the people of God? Does he demonstrate a life of just... Let's break it down like this, really simply. So, no man is perfect. I'm not perfect. No pastor is perfect. We all got faults. We all got blind spots. We all got things we need to grow in. I am first in line there. But as you look at a pastor, do you just think, you know what? I don't know everything about him, and I'm sure there's stuff, and maybe even stuff that you see. <laughs> um, but I believe that man loves Jesus. I believe that man seeks to live a life glorifying and honoring Jesus. That's, that's basically it. That's foundation one. This is a man who has been changed by the gospel, he loves Jesus, and he seeks to glorify and honor and live for Jesus, right? That's, that's step one. And then in verse nine, this is the first sort of skill that is needed. Verse nine, he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it, right? So here it is in a nutshell. A pastor needs to be someone who has been changed by the gospel and can also teach others how to live a life changed by the gospel. Right? There are a few words in verse 9 you can circle there. Right? Hold firm, instruct, rebuke. These are ways of saying, look, he, he knows the word. He's been trained in the word. Pastors must be men of the Bible. When you cut a pastor and he bleeds scripture, people are like, you don't have to give a Bible verse for every answer. Yeah, I kind of do. That's kind of what we do. That's the point for a pastor. Can he take you from point A to point B using the Bible to get you there? Can he help explain the Bible? Does he hold firm to the gospel, hold firm to the word? He's able to instruct people on walking the path of godliness and the gospel of Christ. And he can, if necessary, someone steps off the path, rebuke, correct, point out, and help them get back on the path. 
Can he teach the Bible? Can he teach the Bible? Is he good at taking someone from point A to point B and using the Bible? Now, a couple of thoughts. This doesn't mean that you have to do what I'm doing right now this second. In fact, the teaching ministry of Southview Baptist Church is kind of like an iceberg. This is like the 10% on the top that you see. 90% of the teaching in this church is under the water and you don't see it up on the stage. Right? It's bigger than just what's happening right here, right now. Uh, We have pastors here at our church who are much better teaching in a small group setting than I am. Pastors at our church that are much better teaching in one-on-one discipling, counseling opportunities than I am. It doesn't mean that you have to do it like I'm doing it right here, right now. There are many different avenues and many different contexts in which teaching happens. But however that happens, large group, small group, one-on-one, you're able to explain the Bible in such a way where we show Jesus as the greatest treasure and the gospel as our greatest joy and we take them from point A to point B using the Bible. And, and, and I would say this as well. If, if you're here and, and you even think God might be calling you to ministry, and you're like, the whole idea of standing up and teaching just freaks me out. Like, I am terrified at that idea. Like, I don't think I can do that. I don't think I can do that. That is horrible. One, you're in good company. The average American adult the number one fear of the average American adult is public speaking. Number two is death. Let that sink in for a minute. That means when you go to a funeral, the average American would rather be in the coffin than standing behind it talking. All right? Not something that just comes naturally for a lot of us. It's okay. It didn't for me either. When I was in college, I, made a, I took a public speaking class because I needed the credits and it fit into my schedule. So I took a public speaking class. I made a D only because the professor was nice. I deserved an F. Gave me a D. I physically could not stand up and talk in front of a crowd. I couldn't do it. And my professor was like, so you got to look at people, Brad. Okay, so I had my notes. And I literally wrote in my notes, look up. So here I'll be like, hello. My name is Brad Lynch. It's not good. So then like a few months after that, you know, I I, I love the Lord. I served in my church and I'm seeking the Lord for God. What do you want me to do with my life? And I I was a business major and I thought that was the direction that I was going to go. I had no thought of ministry at all. Um, and uh, and it, God began to really stir up my heart about, about ministry, about being a pastor. And I remember having conversations with God, saying, God, I can't do that. And, and not like in some rebellious, I don't want to. I physically can't do that. Like, anytime I stand in front of the crowd, I want to pass out and throw up at the same time. But in all of that, I remember very clearly God led me to the book of Exodus where Moses said the exact same thing to God. And God says to Moses, Moses, who made man's mouth? Who made made your mouth? If I I called you to do something, I'm going to make that possible. And so it was a real process for me of just submitting myself to the Lord and allowing God to do whatever he wanted in my life. And 
and here I am. And, and for the record, I don't think I'm great at public speaking today. I really don't. I don't think the point of, of verse 9 is you got to be an awesome public speaker. I don't think I am. I talk way too fast. I swing my hands around way too much. I slip into that Darlington County, South Carolina accent. I'm like, I sound like a hick. I, I don't think I'm great at this. The point isn't, are you awesome in front of a crowd? Are you a brilliant orator? Right? That's not the point. The point is, do you eat, sleep, and breathe the word? And when you have the opportunity, in whatever context you're setting, can you lead people from point A to point B using the Bible? Can you explain the glories of the gospel of Jesus Christ using the word? That's the idea, right? And so here it is in a nutshell for a pastor. What do we look for in a pastor? We look for a man who evidences a life changed by the gospel and can help lead other people to have their life changed by the gospel. Right? That's it in a nutshell. That's what we look for. We want a man who evidences a life that has been personally changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they're also able to teach and lead and model and encourage other people to have their lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why does this matter? Like, why are we doing all this? I, I, I know there are guests here today, and you showed up today, and you can't wait to hear a message that's going to really impact your life, and I'm talking about this. And you're like, great. No one ever heard a sermon on church leadership and walked away and went, that totally changed my life. I think I just forgave my dad. That's amazing, right? Whoa. It probably never happened. Um, but I think going through this is important for a few reasons. Uh, number one is this. It's in the Bible, so we should know it. And I know that may seem a little simplistic, but, but can I just be real straight with this just for a second? Our Bible knowledge has got to be deeper than John 3.16, guys. Like, you've you got to know more than that. It, if God said, here's how I want my church to be set up, it should be important for the people of God to know what that is. Right? So, it's in the Bible, so we should know it. It's kind of broad number one. Uh, second, as our ministry grows, um, we're going to need to bring on more pastors, to be quite honest. We're going to need to bring on more pastor elders here at our church to help shepherd those that we believe God is going to bring us. So that means two things. Number one, you may be sitting in this room right now and feel like God is calling you to maybe be a pastor. Here's an opportunity for you to see the word and see what that looks like, what it means, what God calls the spiritual qualifications to be. And just start the process of, of allowing God to work in your heart and say, okay, God, is that me? Is that me? And if there are areas where that's not me, I want you to change that. I want to grow up into this. Um, also, um, I believe, again, that Fayetteville, North Carolina, and Cumberland County has the opportunity to be the number one sending location in the country when it comes to pastors, church planters, and missionaries. I believe that. I believe God's desire is for this little church to be a part of helping lead in that. I believe that over the next 30, 40, 50 years, we have the opportunity for thousands upon thousands upon thousands of men to be raised up and sent out as pastors and planters and missionaries from this city. I believe that with everything inside of me. And so we need to know what to be looking for. We need to know what that means and what that looks like. And, and then third is this, and this is where I really think the rubber meets the road for all of us. As you look at Titus 1, 5 through 9, here's what I want you to see. There isn't a single thing in that passage that actually shouldn't be said about every single Christian. Man, woman, 
boy, girl, whether you're a pastor or a deacon or a, or a small group leader or you, you just attend, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, there isn't a single thing here that should not be said of you. You're a person who seeks to love your family well. You're a person who seeks to rid your life from any sin and unrighteousness. You're a person that seeks to walk as a lover of good and a lover of people and holding fast to the word. And when opportunity comes, you're able to help people understand the word. And here's what God has done in my life. You may not stand up here and do this, but there isn't a single thing in this passage that cannot and should not be said about every single follower of Christ in this room. So, if the whole point of Titus is the gospel of Jesus Christ changes you, the gospel of Jesus Christ changes you, let this passage today be first and foundational for that. It's showing you what a life changed by the gospel looks like. We, people ask all the time, well, what does that mean about my life? And what should that look like? Titus 1, 5 through 9. That's what a gospel life looks like. That's what a life looks like that's been changed, truly changed by Jesus Christ. Is that you? Is that us? And if it's not, I want to encourage you in a couple of things. Number one, the point of this passage, going through this passage, is not condemnation and guilt. Is not, oh, I'm not this and I'm not that and I'm totally that thing that he said I shouldn't be. The point is to allow the word of God to do an examination on our hearts. And as difficult as it is, as hard as it is, it's hard on me. Listen, if you think it's bad to hear it, I had to stand up and say it. As difficult as it is to let the word of God be that mirror to our hearts, we have to. Let the word of God be a mirror and show you, is there something in my life that does not stack up with this? The gospel message proclaimed over all of us will raise up gospel leaders who will then be able to go out and lead more gospel ministries. That's what we want to do. That's our whole purpose. So how do we do that? Well, let's go back to the scripture that we looked at at the beginning. Galatians 2.20. I'm going to ask our band to come up. And let's look at Galatians 2.20 again. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. How do we do this? So you see here in Titus 1, the life of someone changed by the gospel. And you want that. You desire that. You say, I, I want to be that person. I want that to be true of me. Every man, every woman, every person who is truly trusted by faith in Christ, you look at that and say, I want that. I want that. I want to live that. I want to be that. How does that happen? It happens through the truth of Galatians 2.20. The fact that Jesus Christ came and he died for you. And when he died on that cross, you died on that cross. And when he rose again, you rose again. And you've been made new in him from the inside out. You have been made new. All the old has been taken away. New has been placed in. This is who you are. So now how do you live it? How do you live it? How do you bring that out? How do you do that? How does it go from the heart to the hands? 
By living by faith in Christ. Trusting by faith that Jesus Christ has made you new. Jesus Christ has made you righteous. Jesus Christ has made you holy. Jesus Christ has made you good. Jesus Christ has taken away the sin. He has made you one with the Father. So then now you just walk through that and say, Jesus, I know this is true of me because you say it's true of me. And I'm stepping out by faith to live this. Empower me, Jesus. I can't do it in my own strength. I want to do this. Empower me, Jesus, to live out the fullness of all you've made me to be. Everything you need for all of life and godliness is already in you in Christ Jesus. Trust by faith in him and say, Jesus Christ, empower me. I want to live this. And then step out by faith and do it. Step out by faith and live it. And when you fall short and you will, confess that and say, Lord, I fell short of that. I know that I did. I shouldn't have responded that way. That was angry. That was violent. I was selfish there. I was prideful there. I see that. Forgive me. I don't want that. I repent of that. I want to walk forward by faith in you, Jesus. Let the gospel of Jesus Christ change you. Tonight, or today as we finish, we're going to ask you just to kind of stay seated, spend a little time in prayer just right where you are. Our band is going to sing and lead us. If you'd like to come up front and pray at the altar, you can, or you can just stay right where you are, whatever you'd like. But I want today to get settled into our hearts. The gospel of Jesus Christ changes me and makes me new. Jesus makes me new. I want to live out that new for the glory of God. I want to put feet to it. I want to put faith to it. I want to live this. I just don't want to say it. I just don't want to talk it. I want to live it. Jesus Christ, empower me to step out by faith and live this for your glory. Jesus, do this in us. We love you. We need you. Thank you. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.
with us. I pray that your hearts and my heart will be poured out for the gospel. And we offer nothing less than our full being. Let's sing that chorus. (laughs) 